Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're wondering why I'm silent, it's because I did two art degrees and I have nothing to contribute to a discussion on science. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> What's up, piss boys? Uh, welcome to Dungeon Deep Dive. I just found <laughs> out that we've had an explicit tag this whole time. Oh, so it's going to get a little bit wacky. I apologise if somebody's tuned in for the first time on this episode. And I don't. First this thing is what is we're getting... like. Accept us how we are. Yeah, actually, I would say that if this isn't the first episode that you've listened to, Pause the episode now, take it back to the beginning, find someone who hasn't listened, and make sure this is the first episode they listened to. Yeah. Anyway, with that piss, boys and girls, we are today going to be talking about alchemy. Tully, are you okay? You're making squeaking noises. Yeah, I'm fine. I will <laughs> just say, and piss thems. Continue. <laughs> Excellent. I'm I'm here for the piss thems, but I was just not ready for piss, boys and girls. Hey, um, hey gang. Gang, gang. I need you to know, I was going to ask this as a question. I was going to seek approval, but I just want to let you know that any time I speak to the audience from this moment forward, I will refer to them as piss thems and there's nothing anyone can do about it. Great. This would have been great for the sewers episode that we lost, oh, especially yeah. because it's lost. Secret secret missing pilot on sewers. Oh, boy. It was our very first episode and you know what we came up with? Sewers. Yeah, that it was a good episode too. I miss it. It was. It wasn't pissy at all. Yeah, it's weird. We weren't explicit in that one. Anyway. No, we, we tried to pretend that we didn't We swear. tried very hard. Maybe that's why it's lost. Like, the actual show just rebelled. It was like, <laughs> this is not true to who you are. Anyway, I've got a getting to know you question for everyone to... Actually, let's start with what the podcast is about. Yeah, well, as you've no doubt guessed by now, this is Dungeon Deep Dive, wherein every week we take any specific, uh, we take a specific element of your D&D world and we break it down, we look at the history, we look at some, some fictional examples sometimes, and basically we just talk about everything that you would need to think about to put it convincingly in your world. We do the research so you don't have to. Exactly. And if you would like us to look at any specific topic, topics, make sure to catch us uh, at, at Piss Boys and Girls. No, on, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Dungeon Deep Dive or Gmail at Deep Dive TNC. Sorry, I, I just caught up because I thought Lachlan was creating an account for at P- Piss Boys and Girls. Sorry, what? I can't hear you. I'm too busy creating a piss account on Twitter. <laughs> Jesus oh, Christ. Oh, boy. All right, Tolly, steer us out of this toilet. Go. What's, what's your question? Excellent. So I've got a getting to know you question. Uh, when you're building your characters, what is your favourite weapon? Something that you really want your characters to, to have, whether it be aesthetically or for combat purposes, what do you see your character wielding? 
Well, I mean, obviously it depends on the character, but if I'm going my usual like little edge sword style, mm-hmm. poison. Just just poison. Nothing to apply the poison, just poison. Well, just like vials and stuff. Maybe you could apply the poison to daggers. Like they're multi-talented, you know, but their specialty is in brewing the poison. I back that. I back that. Right? Like that is so edgy. That's that's just... I, I back that and I hope to see it in the upcoming campaign. Okay. Yeah. Weaponized poison isn't, a, isn't enough of a thing. Definitely something we should look into. What yeah. about you, Lockie? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I guess if I'm going like swords, I typically like the aesthetic of a bastard sword. I just like being able to switch between two-handed and one-handed. I think that's nice. Yeah. But as, as a rule... It's I'm versatile. Tra- um... As a rule, I'm typically more of a magic and offhand dagger kind of kind of player. Oh nice. yeah, I like daggers. Mm. I like a dual wield dagger, like a dagger in each hand. That is cool. Or throwing daggers, that's cool. Mm. Basically, just like don't put me up close and personal. Just let me throw things or apply things while you're sleeping. That's fair. See, I I take a similar sort of approach. I'm not so much a get up close and hit him with a sword type of thing. But if I'm picking a weapon specifically for for the aesthetic, got to be the whip. Ooh, Gotta be a boy. Whip. It is a okay. dexterity weapon. You don't need to worry about strength. And it is a martial weapon, so you need training in it. But it has a 10-foot reach. This is going off D&D 5e, but... Anyway, today, we're going to have a good talk about alchemy. Yes. I got so excited researching this because alchemy is such a complicated term, really. Mm. I mean, historically, it straddles uh, chemistry, metalwork... Physics, medicine, astrology, mysticism, yeah. art. It's absolutely huge, which is why we've had to split it into two episodes. So uh, this is Alchemy Part 1, and we're going to be looking at specifically magical transmutation or the turning of lead to gold and similar. And in Episode 2, we'll talk a little bit more about chemistry in history and fantasy settings, so a little bit more about uh, potions, poisons, and chemical reactions. Beautifully worded. Uh, so if we're looking at alchemy in its sort of root origins, generally in the real world, alchemy is seen as having had three main goals. One, uh, to transmute metal into gold, and that was usually using the mythical philosopher's stone. Uh, Two, creating an alexia, which was called a panacea, that could cure all diseases and prolong life indefinitely using what is usually referred to as the elixir of life, or sometimes also the philosopher's stone. And three, transmuting human life itself by discovering the relationships of humans to the cosmos and using that understanding to improve the human spirit. So you start to see already how interconnected alchemy is in between sort of heavy science, physics, chemistry, and Mm. more mysticism, spirituality. Yeah, you really get that sort of intersection of science and religion a lot more there. And... Great for fantasy settings where religion is a definite defined source of power. Yeah, well, because, I mean, you're looking at, with alchemy, you're looking at a time where, like, the society was becoming more and more secularised and people were trying to, like, explain the unexplainable, which was a lot at the time, through science and stuff. It's this very interesting, like, meeting of those two things. Sex toys. I couldn't think of a better way to phrase that. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, it's a great meeting of the, the divine, the unknown and the known. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So alchemy basically had three independent origins in the world, which is pretty cool. Uh, and they were Egypt, China and India. Ooh. 
So in China, alchemy was developed mostly by Taoist monks who studied both the what they called the inner and the outer elixirs of life. So these outer elixirs were formed from, you know, minerals, plants, things that were said to prolong life. Mm. Inner elixirs were formed through the use of exercise techniques, like Qigong, to manipulate one's qi or body's life force. And qi is still a driving force behind some martial arts to this day and also features prominently in heaps of books set in ancient or middle-aged China, particularly fantasy novels, Mm. as a sort of, you know, superhuman force that you can manipulate well even in uh, the official setting the D 5e you've got monks who use uh key or chi as their main difference between the other classes yeah uh and the chinese uh alchemy group had their own version of the philosopher's stone even which they called the pill of immortality so chinese Make sure to take your multivitamins yeah absolutely uh, so it developed parallel too, but separately from Western uh, alchemy and chemistry and only recently have the two sort of merged into what we would now consider medicine and, and chemistry proper. Hmm. Um, but you can still see sort of those older remedies and older alchemy today in, in very rural parts of China, just as you can in rural parts of any part of the world. The Indians were also using external and internal methods to purify the body and prolong life Uh For example, it was the 4th century Indian alchemist who first described the process of zinc production by distillation. So they were very advanced, these these three cultures, Mm. all at the same time roughly, or like following on from each other, but no influence from the others. They just completely independently developed these really, really smart people and smart ideas. Um, Indian alchemy, interestingly, like every other Indian science of the time, was really focused on finding moksha, which is perfection, immortality, liberation. So it was doubly focused on that transmutation of the human body from mortal to immortal. Mm. The Egyptians, I think, are probably the most interesting just in that it it free flows so smoothly into our modern day medicine and chemistry. So Egyptians back in the day believed in life after death and they also performed a lot of mummification procedures. So from that we already see they have knowledge of rudimentary chemistry and a goal, an end goal of immortality, basically. I'd never made that connection between alchemy and the the search for immortal life and embalming that's yeah that's crazy yeah that was the early inspiration and well, in fact chem was the word used in reference to the fertility and the renewal of the floodplains around the nile there you go ah. so is that a direct route to chemistry as we know the etymological Etymological roots? We don't know the proper etymological roots of the word chemistry. Like there's about four different propositions. Potential. Yeah, but I think I like I like this one the most because as, as I go through, you'll actually see it undergoes three iterations and turns into a very similar word to chemis- to alchemy, sorry. So right now we have we have chem. Now in about three hundred and thirty two BC the, the Greeks came. Alexander the Great had conquered Egypt and so Greek philosophers started becoming interested in Egyptian beliefs and customs. Ah. So Alexander was Aristotle's student Mm. and we all know Aristotle as a really great philosopher. Aristotle also proposed that all matter was composed of the four elements, earth, air, fire and water. So the Greeks started merging this belief with the Egyptian sacred science and they started calling Egypt as a whole chemia at this time. Oh. 
very oh. cool. Can I just employ you to follow me around in general life? Whenever I say anything, you just go, oh. oh. Yeah, I can do that. Okay, thank you. One thing I've noticed in the past couple of episodes that we've talked about, um, even back as far as when we were recording the pilot, um, when we were talking about sewers, is there's all these things that you think of, you know, that I personally think of as, you know, European creations. You know, you think about it as medieval Europe or earlier. And then you find out when you've done the research that Asia and the Middle East have developed these hundreds, if not thousands of years before um, before Europeans even looked at it. It's absolutely phenomenal how much of this history has been erased from the public, from the zeitgeist. Yeah, it's really cool. And I think um, building into that, there's also so many just general phrases or things you think or say or do in day-to-day life that you just view as oh, there's no real meaning to it. It's just got this random meaning prescribed to it now. Like like the phrase, cat got your tongue, which actually, and I will touch on this in the next episode, has a specific meaning that, that dates back to history and to a certain plant, which I will talk about. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, so, like, oh. Yeah, no, go. I was just going to say, speak. it's just like that thing where, um, oh, I talked about this in the last episode. Just cut this. No, go. I was just going to say, it's like that thing where like, there are all of these ideas that I feel like we always just take for granted as like a given, but like everything has a history. Every idea has a history. Everything's it, interconnected. Yeah, someone came up with everything that we know, because at one point we didn't know anything. And I just think it's really interesting to see the history of things. It's That's kind the of why circle we're here. of life. <laughs> Don't put that as the start either. Okay. But yeah, that's kind of why we're here is creating, well, d- digging down into the history of these things to figure out where it came from and what assumptions we're making that we shouldn't be making. Absolutely. Um, so going back to the history of alchemy, Alexander the Great had conquered Egypt. They were really interested in Egypt, which they called Chemia's uh, principles of alchemy. And Alexander decided to establish Alexandria as the centre of learning. A lot of legends tell of Alexander actually having discovered the Greek god Hermes' famous emerald tablet, which was reputed to contain all these ancient alchemical secrets, including that of the Philosopher's Stone. So he's said to have actually built the Great Library in Alexandria specifically to house alchemical texts. But as they were... um, want to do in the third century invading christians burned the library (laughs) which destroyed a lot of relevant works perhaps some of which could have told us a lot more about very early alchemy honestly the the historical event i'm the most angry about in any part of the world is the burning of the library of alexandria yeah look oh yeah have you guys seen like the chart of predicted um like intellectual human progress if the library of Alexandria hadn't been burned down. No. It was basically like, according to this chart, the way it seems is the reason for the dark ages was the burning of the library of Alexandria. Um, And we would be like at like, based on our our, like rate of progress, probably like deep into space by now. Yeah, so you know how we've come back every episode and I've sort of made the point of the Middle Ages basically being like they chucked everything out the window or like, nah, and started again? Consider the burning of the Alexandrian library as them chucking everything they knew out the window. 
Um, so basically, as soon as soon after the Alexandrian Library got burned, this Alexandrian dude named Zosimus wrote what are now the oldest known books on alchemy, but they emphasize its mysticism rather than its medical or practical applications. So we skip ahead now to about the seventh century. Egypt's now occupied by the Arabs, who added the word, uh, the prefix al to the word chemia. So alchemia, meaning black, the black land or the fertile land, is now oh. seen as the possible origin for the word alchemy. Another possibility go. is the Greek word kumos, meaning fluid. But and there's like two or three other ones as well. There's no consensus about which one it is. Then in the 8th century, the Arabian Wars brought alchemy over to Spain and therefore to the rest of Europe. The Arabian belief at that time was that metals were basically made up of mercury and sulfur in varying proportions. Mm. Gold was seen as the perfect metal and this idea was mirrored all throughout the West. So it was a very popular idea all of a sudden to transmute lower metals into gold usually by means of this mystical substance commonly called the Philosopher's Stone, which was also believed to be able to confer immortality. So now, thanks to the Arabs, alchemical knowledge is spreading around Europe and at its centre was Spain. Um, You also hear a lot of uh, phrases about aqua vitae, the water of life. This is all Mm. coming back to the elixir of life, the Philosopher's Stone. Alchemy then led to the discovery of lots of advances in chemical processes and the apparatus required for them, like really legitimate ones. By the Middle Ages, we're thinking like 5th to, f- to 15th centuries, European alchemists were intensely searching for what they called the Philosopher's Stone, um, which basically was said not to be so much uh, the solution in and of itself as it was the essential ingredient for both that transmutation into gold and curing all disease slash immortality. Alchemists uh, throughout history had previously been enjoying lots of prestige and support more or less because they contributed to what we now term chemistry, like they invented gunpowder in China, they refined ore, they worked metal, they produced ink, dyes, paints, cosmetics, ceramics, glass, all this kind of really, really necessary stuff for society to evolve. Mm. And then by the 16th century, the alchemists in Europe had basically separated into two groups. Group one focused on the discovery of new compounds and their reactions. Mm. They became the chemists of modern day. Group two stayed focused on the spiritual or metaphysical side. They continued to search for immortality and transmutation into gold and they became the alchemists as we know it today. Ah, so that's more of the separation of alchemy as, a, as an art, you know, as, a, as a religious science versus as a purely physical science. Absolutely. It's really interesting to see where that, like, where in history that distinction was made. Because it, when we think about alchemists now, like alchemists that actually existed, it seems so separate from actual chemical sciences. Yeah, whereas in reality, it was very closely linked. For what it sounds like the most of the history of the ideas of both. Yeah. Well, yeah. But if you look into uh, scientists, even of the, the 18th century, Isaac Newton was a um, prominent alchemist in his time. It was still quite common for scientists to be looking into um, alchemy as the more religious side of things. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you, you see uh, alchemy and its related things, the Philosopher's Stone and the Elixir of Life, appearing across media 
since you know it first appeared to now like we still have harry potter and the philosopher's stone Mm. nicholas formel's mentioned in there who was a real alchemist but actually really interesting side note possibly a really good example of um pseudepigraphy uh giving your works the name of someone else usually more famous okay so who's that dude in harry potter you know the second one chamber of secrets and he takes other people's stories and puts his name on them oh gilderoy lockhart right it's basically like the reverse of that it's like you write the story but you want it to be more famous because no one knows you so you give it some other dude's name which was nicholas formel uh pulling a mozart Mm. it's um nanelle mozart she gave a lot of her works to her older brother or to her younger brother, because he was more famous as a prodigy and she was expected to hold a house. So a lot of Mozart's early works may well be his sisters. That's awesome. Yeah. You see that same thing pretty commonly through medical history as well, where yeah. um, medical discoveries were made by a research assistant rather than a professor. And so instead they gave credit to the professor to get the idea spread around rather than take the credit. Yeah. Absolutely. Just to kind of take a tangent from there, I'd love to see how that affects named spells in the universe. If you look at spells like Morden Kanan's, you know, um, Faithful Hound or uh, Bigby's Hand, uh, Melf's Acid Arrow, imagine if those were spells crafted by research assistants. Oh, interesting. Could yeah. Very well have been. Hmm. Another interesting note, actually, while I think of it, uh, probably the most recent example of alchemy in, in popular media I think is probably Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides you know they're all searching for that fountain of youth they are too yeah so it's still a popular idea um just to round off the history of alchemy it didn't survive the enlightenment the age of reason of the 17th and 18th centuries but the first group the chemists definitely did and chemistry to this day is still sometimes called the central science because it connects the natural sciences like physics geology and biology but I think, you know, turning now from the real history of alchemy to D&D, alchemists and chemists across history have lacked common words for chemical concepts and processes until quite recently. And they also wanted to guard their secrets a lot of the time. So they started borrowing terms and symbols from biblical and pagan mythology, from astrology, from Kabbalah and other mystic and esoteric fields. So to someone coming in and trying to read their writings that weren't part of the field, it read and seemed exactly like magic. There you go. Oh. Actually, another interesting thing that I was reading is uh, about the history of alchemy is that especially in the Dark Ages, um, they were very suspicious of other people finding out the secrets of alchemy. Mm-hmm. So they would encode everything that they wrote. Yes. But every alchemist had a different code. And so now when we go back and look into these texts, it's almost impossible to know if when they talk about tin, are they talking about tin? Are they talking about silver, iron, a special compound that they created? Exactly. Um, and they, they never had any code books. They'd memorised the codes. Mm, they were really cool cool people, really. Yeah, but it means that a lot of the research is either obfuscated or destroyed because it's not understandable without the cipher. So... Here, I think, uh, uh, where you have to start questioning your own world and your concept of it and how you're going to build this in. Does your world practice what we now consider alchemy or chemistry? Does it have any specific goals uh, that are hotly debated and sought, like the philosopher's stone or the elixir of life? Is alchemical science viewed as a legitimate science? Is it holy? Is it a perversion? Is it heresy? Is it a con man's gimmick? What successes have alchemists had? What have they invented? 
So yeah. all things that I think are really relevant to your campaign. Exactly. It's cool stuff to, to be thinking about is those cool stuff to be thinking about is those distinctions of, you know, what what place does this have in our world? Um, now I would love to talk about the difference the actual transmutation of lead to gold, but more specifically, um, talking about magical transmutation. Uh, in settings like this, we always have transmutation or alchemy in some sort of variation where by magical means you can turn one thing into another. And it's important to talk about, A, is that possible? If it is, how is it possible? And then what limitations are you going to put on that magic? Um, so first of all, you've got um, in our current world what we call well, our actual physical laws, which are the laws of conservation of matter and conservation of energy, which is matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed. It is all conserved. It is all still there. It just takes different forms. Uh, that's important to note that you cannot summon energy from thin air. It has to come from somewhere. I'll loop back to that a little bit later when we talk about sources of magical energy. But in fiction, there's one example that I, I think handles it really well is Full Metal Alchemist. It's uh, a manga and later on three or four anime uh, series, but it talks about the law of equivalent exchange, basically saying that if you need to create something, something must first be destroyed. And later on they talk about three steps of how you use it, which is first, comprehension. You need to understand what you are what you're making and what you are taking. Then it's deconstruction, pulling everything apart, and then reconstruction. So it's that three-step process that allows you to successfully practice alchemy. Now, um, I'm going to talk about some real-life alchemy where actual people have turned lead into gold. Ooh. Yes, this is something that has happened. Um, specifically, David J. Morrissey, he was the, the lead researcher in this particular thing. Is he an absolute boss? Yes, he's an absolute boss, David J. Morrissey. So this, was, this is based on an article that I found in Scientific American. And it was the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory succeeded in producing small amounts of gold from bismuth. And it is possible from lead. The reason that they used bismuth, which is uh, one proton and uh, electron sh- smaller, is because there's only one stable bismuth isotope, whereas there's four um, stable lead isotopes. So it just meant it was easier to tell when they turned something into gold or if they'd kept it with lead. Bismuth's that really beautiful one that sort of looks like a like the inside of a computer or something. It's a it? rainbow crystalline, yeah. Yeah, and it's it, but it's shaped in like those weird little boxes almost. Yeah, it's made out of little square cubic shapes mm. um, that kind of stack inside each other in weird ways. It's very beautiful. It looks like it belongs in like Tron. Yeah, um, but basically, what happened was they got these sheets of bismuth, and they would use a particle collider to fire electrons at it to knock electrons and protons out of the atom oh my god did they literally just make it so it had the same number of yeah components as a gold atom did yes literally that's it but it's so that's amazing it was so hit and miss because um because (laughs) you're just knocking pieces out of it that hit and miss (laughs) (laughs) that's not even sexy i'll stop no because it it's a particle collider it's literally about hitting no, I just... Okay. I meant the term, Shut but up. that's fine. Shut up. Anyway. Um, but basically what happened so. was they created uh, a bunch of different isotopes of gold. Now, they measured the gold that they created by finding the specific radioactive gold particles, the ones that fall apart. 
but um, they did create some gold that was, or they, they theorized they created some gold that was not radioactive, but it was too small an amount to be picked up by a mass spectrometer. Now, uh, they actually did a little bit of maths here to figure out how much money it would have taken using this method to, and the amount of energy that they were using to actually get an ounce of gold. I'm glad you finished that sentence because... I was going to say, like, they're probably using more than a little bit of maths in this experiment. Mm. But to to figure out, um, basically what they discovered was to make one ounce of stable gold using this method, it would take more than one quadrillion US dollars. Oof. That's worth it. It's worth it. Yeah. At a... Gold price of I think at that point it was two hundred and seventy US dollars per ounce. Um, yeah, that seems like a good investment to me. Yeah, yeah absolutely. but um, the, because the I mean, think about it. Think about it. That might have been the cost of a regular ounce of gold, but how much is the price of the one ounce of gold that's been made by converting lead into gold? That's a more valuable ounce of gold. Alchemical gold. It's famous. Um, but yeah, it is important to take that into consideration because such a huge amount of energy went into creating this. Turning lead to gold takes a lot of energy. Um, now, naturally, elements are create- that are created within a star, um, this is most of the elements in our known universe, uh, they will be all the elements that are lighter than and as heavy as iron. So all the elements on the periodic table up to iron are created within stars. Which I believe is... 12 from that point on it's uh, fission is how the other any heavier elements um, need to be created in supernovas Uh, so that's anything that is lead gold bismuth uh, anything heavier than that it's all going to be created in a supernova or something similar where it's taking heat and using that to fuse I thought that the things that couldn't be made inside of a regular star were just made from a process of degradation and fuse and like chemical reaction. Yeah, it uh, well, like were they did it like all come from a supernova? It's theorized that most of it came from supernovas, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And um if you're wondering why I'm silent, it's cuz I did two art degrees and I have nothing to contribute to a discussion on science. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, oh, I'm sorry. There are things that can be... Things on the lower end can be made from yeah. bloody... Things can be made from fusion at the low end because they got less things. Yes. Up to iron. You need fission for the heavy ones. Uh, f- fusion? I'm a Fusion fool. for the heavy ones. Don't listen to anything I've ever said. Please continue. Um, but yeah, essentially the, the process of creating gold out of anything is just going to take a whole lot of energy. Uh, specifically turning lead to gold, same deal. You've got to knock exactly three protons, three electrons, and then a specific number of neutrons so that it doesn't turn out radioactive. Um, it's a tough process. So here's where we start to get into the divine and your limits of magic in your universe. Now, this is something we'll touch on in a couple of different episodes, I'm sure, because it's a huge topic. But um, as far as the limits of magic here, you've got to first ask, where does your magic come from? So... We've got divine magic, which comes from the gods. could potentially be intrinsic. Uh, If you're talking about a world in which a night's sleep heals all wounds, then potentially there is some intrinsic magic. Um, Perhaps it comes from the world itself as like a natural magic or comes uh, bleeding into the world from other planes, all of which are explored in some 
variety in a lot of the source books, but it's your it's your world and you get to define what makes it. Um, now, it is good to have a look at. There's a writer. His name is Brandon Sanderson. I hear he's quite famous. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he gave a huge talk and distilled it down to three rules of writing magic. Uh, the first is an author's ability to solve conflict with magic is directly proportional to how well the reader understands said magic. So basically, in order for an author to use the magic, their readers have to know how it works. Makes sense. Yep. It seems like a cop-out if you use an incredible magical power that doesn't even make sense in the world and is just really just a deus ex machina. Exactly. And deus ex machina is the exact way to... the exact thing to avoid. Yeah. It's... You're trying to make it so that if something magical happens, you know that there are limits to that magic. It's not just because your GM said so. Um, now, the second rule is the limitations must be greater than the powers. So, basically, that comes down to if you can do unlimited things with magic, it's not special anymore. It's just something you do. So, having those limits on it gives you something to strive for, something to break, something to work within. And then rule three is expand on what you already have before you add anything new, uh, which is great. It's a way we can look at the universe and look at the existing source books and say, okay, what have we got? What are we going to take? What are we going to build on? Um, and, yeah, what are the limits of using said magic in your world? So there are a couple of different things that you could do to impose limits. Um, I do particularly like the law of equivalent exchange, um, especially having to take similar elements and deconstruct and reconstruct in order to make something new. Um, there is also potentially using a, a physical cost worth. Uh, that's something you see a lot in RPGs, is if you see a diamond worth 200 gold pieces. It gives it a limit, but it means you don't have to worry about the exact chemical makeup of something. Which ultimately, I think, translates into just another use of equivalent exchange. Exactly. It's monetary exchange rather than actual physical matter exchange. Yeah. Um, now, for transmutation specific, uh, for magic in general, you can also have like a physical or a mental toll for performing powerful magics. Um, if you're looking at D&D, it could be in the form of a bane, um, you know, a stat drop or a condition. could even be that they're exhausted, something like that. I mean, even spell slots are just a representation of, um, of the amount of magical energy that can be channeled by someone before fatigue. Exactly. And then there's uh, something that I really liked um, that I was thinking of just when we were talking about the uh, radioactive isotopes of gold, is if you don't do it perfectly you don't do it absolutely to the letter, uh, then what you've created might be temporary. It might start degrading. <gasps> That's so fun. Doing yep. something with that is so fun. So if you create a bar of gold out of a, a ton of lead, then it could well start... It could well be radioactive. It could start making people sick and start Damn. falling apart. I mean, uh, realistically, you could even justify because, I mean... D&D, the world's your oyster. Mm. You could have it be that maybe more pieces started falling off of those off of those bloody little atoms there and it's like hydrogen by the time you get it anywhere. Starts bubbling up into, into air and water. Yeah, that could be fun. Yeah, but that's kind of what I've got for um, developing the, the laws of magic as far as you use them, specifically when it comes to transmutation or alchemy. Okay. Yeah, so I guess now we should talk a little bit about uh, the actual use of alchemy in your games. And I think the most important thing to consider when you're trying to create something that's like 
interesting regarding like rules around this kind of stuff and obviously i'm talking more than beyond just like the mechanical rules that make things balanced because obviously those also have to be there but um looking at rules like the equivalent exchange and stuff can be very useful but another thing that i think is worth keeping in mind is um you can also play with those rules to change how your players view this magic Hmm. for instance um, if you, at one point, if your society at one point had the view that transmutation can only transform certain things to certain kinds of things or can only transform things of certain sizes or something, um, you could have it be seen as a measure of progress, a measure either whether it be of magical prowess or scientific progress or whatever it is that you want to uh, categorize it as. Uh, removing those rules later on can be seen as like a triumph for the players. So don't, don't absolutely, yeah. So don't don't be afraid to get rid of the rules later if you can come up with obviously some way to make the magic not limitless. And I will say, uh, you have to remember that in D anD D you have so much more to work with than you have in any other interactive medium. And I, I guess that goes for all tabletop games like you can have magic uh say you can have a transmutation wizard be able to transmute several kilometers in diameter just this like massive ring is transmuted because you're probably working on a planet and living on a continent in Mm. a country so you can work with things on a much much larger scale without worrying about things seeming limitless because your players will always keep in mind that there's a very the vast world around them yeah and one of the things i love about working on a much larger scale to what you're used to is the limits that you impose can be more like boundaries that are to be crossed you know if you were to you know, transmute an entire city, then you're potentially going to need to make transmutation circles in, you know, key areas of the city and it's going to take a long time for the magic to reach from one place to the next mm. because it's this huge amount of magical energy that you're going to need. Yeah, and, and that's another thing. Uh, if you can effectively limit the use of magic like that simply by making it too difficult, it doesn't have to be impossible you could just make things really hard. Like, things already exist like that in D&D. Mm. Things like, um, the first example that comes to mind is uh, transforming into a lich. It's an incredibly taboo and incredibly powerful magic, but it's also very demonstrably possible. Yeah. It's just not something that the average person would have the commitment or the resources or the time, really, to go about doing even if they wanted to and if your players do really want this if that's something that they absolutely want to strive for then if you've made them work hard enough for it it will feel like such an enormous victory for them and that's kind of why we play these games isn't it yeah because it's like sure the book says that 15th level spells aren't possible with player characters but the book also says that you're the dm and not to listen to the book so that's the rule i'm gonna listen to it is important to state that over and over again. The DM's guide and the player's handbook say the DM's word is law. Mm-hmm. That's the main rule of D&D is the, what the DM says goes. Otherwise, the whole world falls apart. I really consider the law books and the handbooks to be in-depth examples. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they and are you can take them examples. or leave them. Yeah. 
Um, the other thing, I guess, to consider is, uh, like Danae was talking about a bit earlier, you have to know how alchemy and transmutation and the like is viewed within the world. So that's going to vary based on a few different things. So um, depending on the level of magic in your setting, like a high magic setting is probably going to be more likely to embrace something like alchemy, whereas maybe a low magic setting sees this as tampering with the forbidden. Or maybe this is the only magic that you have in a low magic setting, this meeting uh, this meeting point between natural science and magic might be the only thing that's available to people in this world that's a fantastic low magic setting is one where magic and science are studied as one and this is kind of the the turning point yeah well because really at the end of the day when we're talking about transmutation the difference between transmutation and chemistry is its chemical changes that you couldn't otherwise make, either because of lack of technology, uh, lack of understanding, lack of energy, and magic effectively overcomes those barriers Mm. um, in a way that is really interesting. So even a low magic setting could justify something like alchemy because while you don't have the magic to cast fireball, you might have the magic to, with the right preparation and the right understanding and the right series of materials and ingredients have that extra bit of magical power to just charge a chemical reaction that little bit more just get a little bit past that typical equivalent exchange thing that you'd see in the real world yeah just a little bit overcharged things that already exist i mean there's uh, chemical weapons are a great way to start mm, with yes. something like that. The history of them is very rich. We'll talk about that a little more in the next episode. But adding just a little bit more power using those, using that magic of transmutation would be fantastic for a low magic setting. Yeah, absolutely. And it could be something that could be very easily viewed as just a scientific pursuit. Maybe, maybe the people in the world and your players don't even realize that it's being powered at least partly by magic. I now really want to play a one-shot in a low-magic setting with um, with Isaac Newton as an alchemist. Oh, my God. Oh that's my really God. good, actually. That would be great fun. Okay. So, I'm just going to write that down. <laughs> um, and then, as any good Marxist, you have, uh, as any good Marxist would tell you, you have to consider where the ideas come from. Everything is a developing history. Ideas come from somewhere. So, where did the idea for alchemy come from? Was it something that was just based on knowledge? Was it for power? Was it for wealth? Was it something that was stumbled across by mistake entirely? These origins of it are going to frame what the original conceptions of it were, and it's going to establish the direction that the initial studies went in, which is going to be really, really important because that's going to inform everything that comes after. That basic foundation is going to be how everyone views this study, at least for a long time. So it's important to consider why people actually tried doing it. What was their goal? Um, And then same thing when you're looking at individuals. Um, As a rule, most people would enter into something like this to seek something specific, whether it be to transmute lead into gold or seek immortality with the philosopher's stone or transmute their chair into their long-lost wife. I don't know. 
but that people go into it with something in mind, mm. um, something that's this like grounded in practical results. So just consider what it is that um, your NPCs are actually doing. What is it that they're trying to transmute? Is it something that's deeply personal? Is it just something that they think will make them money? And here's a recurring theme that we that keeps cropping up in all of our episodes is people do things for a reason. They've all got their unique character motivations. And in everyone's story, they're the good guy. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. It, just the same as the idea for alchemy has to come from somewhere, the idea for someone to learn alchemy has to have come from somewhere. And then kind of on a, on a bit more of a broader scale, if alchemy or transmutation or whatever it is you're calling it in your setting is a common thing, is actually a discipline within the world, then what are the goals of the people within that discipline? Typically, people in a field of study will have a generally agreed-upon series of goals that they're progressing to, um, whether it be the physics and engineering goal of space travel and renewable energy and blah. Like, there's going to be scientific consensus and one of the cool things about alchemy is we've got those established goals of eternal life and transmuting lead to gold yeah exactly um so the examples that i wrote down were maybe you could like tolly was talking about earlier try and pull a full metal alchemist and you're trying to work out what the thing to exchange for life is trying to create life through transmutation uh maybe it's something as simple as lead into gold. Maybe someone's trying to work out the ingredients to transmute magic itself to turn a regular door into a portal to another plane. or To turn energy to matter. Yeah. To turn magical energy straight into matter. That's... Or vice versa. Or, yeah, or vice versa. Matter straight into magical energy could be an incredibly powerful thing and that's something that could set off a chain reaction or something that even your big bad could be after. Exactly. On that note with about the big bad, uh, another example I have is like a mad alchemist uh, hell-bent on transmuting not only uh, people and human souls, but also the world itself. Like alchemy can ostensibly, when you're looking at like overcoming physical laws through the use of magic, then you could, even if it's not realistic within the setting itself, you could very much justify people believing that this could end up being a limitless power to transmute human souls to be obedient slaves and a world of diamonds or something. If you are looking to use alchemy uh, specifically with your big bad, I would recommend Full Metal Alchemist. It's something that we've mentioned a few times and it has an excellent core uh, throughout the plot of alchemy as this core of the world and what it's about. Yeah, it's also got a really interesting exploration of trying to transmute sentience, which I think is really, really worth looking into. Mm, It's Um, that the life as a, a... part of alchemy yeah because that's that's something that you really have to keep in mind is that these people don't people who call themselves alchemists call themselves alchemists because it's a time where science wasn't differentiated from spirituality and from magic and stuff so if you're living in if you're living in a world where people have people are very spiritualistic and believe in like the concept of a soul and believe that that's a physical thing then it would be 
very justifiable for someone to want to try and transmute that soul to change that person. Mm. And then even if you were living in a world that was more secularized and was more kind of materialistic in a philosophical sense, then um, transmuting a human brain would be as just as an effective, just as effective of an equivalent and perhaps even more possible. Yeah, and that's where you get into those concepts like lichdom um, or eternal life through the swapping of bodies. It's yeah. a, as a transmutational thing, as an alchemical concept. Hell, I mean, you can even, it even gives you an avenue to explore the basic ideas of what sentience is, if you use, and what things are, like what things were built to be. It just. That's a deep, dark hole you're going down, dearie. Yeah, well, it just it gives you an opportunity to, and that's the beauty of it, because it is powered by magic. Mm. You can justify someone trying to change anything into anything, which can go well beyond the world of the physical into extremely abstract metaphysical concepts. Yeah. Imagine a villain trying to transmute the concept of justice. What would that look like? Jesus. Yeah. Think about it. So while we're thinking about that, why don't we think about some other stuff too? Come back with an idea even. Fantastic. We're going to come back with uh, an idea of what a world of alchemy could look like and potentially even a fictional alchemist. We'll see you soon. Sooner than you'd think. And welcome back, everyone. We're back. We are here, as promised, as feared. And we have a quest for you. Um, So we were basically talking over the break about um, some different ideas as to how to set up like an actual full quest that revolves around alchemy. Exactly. And a bit of a way to expose your characters to how magic works in your world because you don't want to just go off on exposition. You want to show them what happens in the world. Yeah, and the beauty of something like alchemy with its very defined rules is it establishes for your players, if it's something that you wish to explore in your campaign, it establishes for your players this idea of magic still being confined by rules. Um, So it could even be something that you introduce to your party very early in the campaign to just be like, Hey guys, also, magic works in a very specific way, so learn about it so you can use it. I don't so, know. jot that down. Yeah, write it down. Um, they won't write it down. Parties through, never write anything down. Just one thing, through God, all things are possible, so uh, jot that down. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, the quest idea that we settled on. Uh, so your party uh, is in the middle of a fairly large, let's say, city um, and uh, are encountered by an alchemist, a nobleman, a, ve- a very wealthy alchemist, uh, perhaps even the director of the Alchemical College, um, who has approached the party, seeing that they are competent adventurers, as mm. NPCs who need to deliver quests often notice. Um and asks them to seek out his three missing wards. Um, the party, trekking these wards down, find out that they 
claimed to have fled the alchemist due to his experimentations in transmuting human souls to create, essentially, mindless slaves or whatever it is that he's trying to create. Hmm. Uh, However, you could have the party travel with the children for an extended period of time and then just ever so subtly hint at what the limits of their power might be too. Show maybe someone transmuting a piece of paper to alter some text. Uh, transmuting an animal to make it go into a trap. Little things that just give the party the impression that maybe these children have a little bit too good of a grasp on transmutation to be able to trust anything that's going on with them either. Mm. Because, I mean, you give someone the ability to vary matter itself and they suddenly become an incredibly unreliable narrator of their story. Tell you what, giving kids like way too much power is such a good plot hook because it can go in all sorts of ways depending on how your party interacts with them. Yeah, and the beauty of if you decided to lean into this and say end up with the, uh, for instance, it could end up with the children having transmuted the alchemist and they've been evil this whole time and he doesn't remember because they transmuted him to have a brain that didn't have those memories. I don't know. I'm not a neurologist. Wow. The interesting thing about, I think, using specifically children as, like, these powerful, like, magical entities is you can get around not having very well-defined limits on the magic by having the limits be the fact that they're children because, I mean... Yeah, it could be the limits of their understanding of the the social situations or even the, the knowledge of alchemy. Yeah, like, there are so many things that you could have applied to children that would restrict what they could do in a way that you could never apply to adults or would need a lot more legwork to do it. Mm. That's the bloody quest. Yeah, I love that. That's a really cool thing to to be working into your universe. I think that about wraps us up for today. Uh, This has been alchemy when we're talking about magical transmutation. Uh, Catch us next week when we talk about alchemy as far as chemistry with potions, poisons and chemical reactions. As always, if you'd like to talk to us, if you'd like to tell us about what you've discovered, if you've got any feedback, or you'd just like to have a chat, catch us on our, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, at Dungeon Deep Dive, or email us at deepdivetnc at gmail.com. And find me on Twitter at, at pissthem. I did make it during this recording. Catch you later, pissthems. Ha! <laughs> The TV shows we watch say a lot about ourselves. Like how political dramas allow Kurt to escape from real-world politics. And how Jane's obsessed with identity themes in teen drama. (laughs) It can be tricky to work out why we love the things that we love. And that's why we started the podcast, Nadie Look. Bothers me in superhero shows. Right. I don't know why. Each week we pick an episode of one of our favourite TV shows and force the (laughs) other person to watch it. Sometimes we actually manage to convince each other that these shows are great. I really appreciate that it could be super expository without being super expository. And sometimes we, mostly Jane, uh, pulls them to absolute pieces. Hey, you can't just hang a lantern on it. 
and expect me not to notice that that's a dumb plot point to get you from A to B. It's always a pretty fun time. And sometimes we discover new things about ourselves, our friendship, or something about the media we consume. Oh, our friendship. Yeah. <laughs> Come find us. Made You Look is now available on the That's Not Canon podcast network. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.